Hi, this is Alex Lewis, one of the producers of The Dig. Before we get to this week's episode, we want to ask you to take a few minutes to support the show. We have a Patreon account, where you can become a monthly supporter of The Dig. You can find us by going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And once you're there, search for The Dig Podcast. And please consider supporting us with $5, $10, $20 per month. Even a donation of just 2 or $3 per month will make a huge difference. In short, your financial support will help make this scrappy production sustainable. Okay, thanks for listening, and on to the episode. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. On the left, there is perhaps no facet of mainstream journalism more detested than political reporting. It so often substitutes the horse race for substantive issues, hews to path-dependent lines of groupthink narrative, dresses up conventional inside-the-beltway wisdom as independent analysis, and resorts to the false balance of he-said-she-said, instead of doing the hard work of establishing what is actually factual. Political reporters took a serious hit after Donald Trump won the Republican primary, and then the presidency, and Bernie Sanders mounted a dead serious challenge to the Democratic Party's anointed candidate. The Trump administration is now using its bully pulpit to leverage the lack of trust in the media into an all-out assault on empirical reality, clinging to its own alternative facts and labeling the media an opposition party purveying fake news. My guest today is Dave Weigel, a reporter at The Washington Post who is amongst the best in the game. He doesn't come from the left, but he gets us better than any mainstream reporter out there. Dave Weigel, welcome to The Dig. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, my first question is, are Republicans totally and irreparably fucked on health care? If House Republicans pass a repeal bill that guts Medicaid expansion, they won't get votes for more centrist Senate Republicans. If they were to keep Medicaid, which they won't, they would face an even larger revolt from House conservatives who are already extraordinarily angry over what they're calling Obamacare light. And if they pass any sort of repeal, Millions of people will lose their health insurance. Our basket case private insurance market will become a dumpster fire and they will have to own it all in 2018. How do you see this playing out? I think you said it pretty well. I'm, I'm in the Senate right now. So if, if you hear the chatter of a TV or you know cursing behind me, it's it's it's, it's Senate reporters. And then uh, having just grabbed a bunch of Sen- Republican senators, they varied between I haven't read this yet or and this is terrible. Uh, literally no one ready to, to vote for this thing in the Senate. That doesn't mean if it was falling right in front of them today, this second, they wouldn't, but uh, they don't want to endorse this. And I think it, you did just lay it out well. I, mean, I returned to something I've been kind of wagging my, my pundit finger about uh, recently, which is I think uh, Mitt Romney was totally right in 2012 when – or the people who backed Mitt Romney in 2012 saying if you don't win, beat Obama that year, then it's the most pivotal election ever. You're never going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Cruz trying to delay the Affordable Care Act in 2013, kind of similar rhetoric, same, same correct idea. I think what they were saying, which was once people get used to having these benefits, it'll be very hard to get rid of them. And yep, I don't like having having all of them say that for years and then forget it as soon as they win power has been fairly enlightening. So, I mean, is there 
any um, solution that's not horrible for Republicans? A single payer. Politically speaking? I guess. Nothing single payer. <laughs> I've joked and like barely with a joking voice that if you just called single payer Trump care, you could get him behind it and get him to do it. Uh, no, there's there's really – so the way to do – to basically the way to pass any policy that leaves a bunch of losers in your – that leaves a bunch of losers behind is to frame it as taking uh, – stopping the – giveaway of something that you've earned to somebody who didn't earn it. And I feel like that's been effective in the past at not just attacking this, but attacking all sorts of social welfare legislation. The, the problem with designing an Obamacare repeal is a lot of people benefiting from this didn't think they were, but are you know, Trump voters, basically, not just the, the cliched guy in the diner off the coal mine shift, Trump voter, but upper middle class people who said, eh, you know, give it a, give it a shot. Um, he said he's going to replace this with something better. So they are learning, uh, frankly, what we should have learned during the campaign, but was obscured by the glowing sun of Donald Trump, which was uh, that there were lots of benefits accruing to people in this in this health care bill, and they're going to be taken away. And just, that was not litigated during the campaign. I went back and looked at the presidential debate transcripts, for example, and there's one question about the ACA all framed around how it was a disaster that was going to collapse. Uh, that was the question that was asked. That was how Trump answered it. Hillary defended it. And so... That is the problem. There's not a way. I mean, uh, there's not a way to fix this without taking money from some people to redistribute it to your voters. And Democrats were doing that, and Republicans are trying to figure out a way not to. Uh, it's it's tough. I mean, hearing them spin it today, it's been all about the money it saves. Which again, that, I think that's effective if you were talking about a redistribution people don't like if they think the money is being wasted on some group of people who didn't earn it. Uh, you know, the the Rick Santelli some losers, grubby right? food stamp. Uh... Right, or food, food stamps. Some grubby food stamp people. I, I think HAMP was pretty easy to say if you're, if, you know, bought a bigger house and you can afford, then why should we help you out? Well, that kind of stuff. That usually works pretty well, um, but they can't do it with us because of the reality of the way this was structured. So, is this a contradiction that's peculiar to healthcare policy, or is this the sort of problem that Republicans are going to run into time and time again? It's easy for them to run against Democratic policies, but the policies that they actually advocate are often quite unpopular Mm -hmm. and are only more unpopular once they're implemented. And then complicating matters even more for them, Trump has made certain commitments to be this sort of big government Republican in certain ways and a friend of the working class, something uh, that's quite at odds with the median congressional Republican. Well, that, that's true, but I'm, I'm going to probably sound repetitive talking about this. Uh, a lot of the discussion around the way this law worked and the way you could replace it was was just bogus. It was based on, I think, in the one hand, kind of worst-case scenario stories that were getting infamous, especially in these people's states, uh, and kind of cherry-picked points. I mean, Republicans like, for example, the to say how many counties there are where you only have one choice of insurer in the exchange. Well, you know, as we can see from any map, there are lots of counties that are super rural and of people. They're, they're in bigger trouble if you take away the money that goes to rural hospitals. So it's just it's just a bunch of reality crashing into how this how this bill was described by Republicans. I mean, the, the scenario they presented, uh, well, this was, this was, I guess there were two. The scenario that Senate and House Republicans presented was that there was a free market healthcare dream that would let make people a lot happier and stop making young people waste their money on insurance they didn't want. And if you repeal the bill, you get that. And the, the Trump dream was we're going to repeal it with something terrific and no one's going to lose their coverage. He said several times that everyone who's going to be covered now would be covered. Uh, if he 
hinted that that you were going to love the plan, which is usually not something people promise before they have a plan in mind. So that those are both proving difficult to live up to. Uh, especially, I, I noticed in the way that Paul Ryan has spun this in the first few hours is, well, we save money, and we do. I mean, you can generally save money if you spend less to help out older people who need health care. Uh, we're, we're saving money, and overall premiums go down. And uh, that's similar to what Republicans say a lot. If they're trying, you know, if you're trying to pass a tax cut that 95% which of, of which goes to um, the top tax bracket, you describe the total cost of the tax cut, saying it's it's a huge tax cut, it's a trillion dollar tax cut we're going to give people. Uh, same thing on healthcare. You could say, well, it's a premiums are going to go down. They're great. Well, premiums go down uh, a little bit. They go down a lot for young people who don't really need to buy it and might not, and they increase for older people who are the ones who regularly vote and the ones they said were not going to be affected by this. The the actual implementation of the ACA at existing and being a reality in people's lives seems to have really scrambled healthcare mm-hmm. politics in a lot of ways. Do you think that obviously there are these very right-wing proposals on the table, but do you think that there's an opening after the dust settles for the left to try to start a conversation about single payer as an alternative to both the ACA and Trump care. Yeah, I actually don't need to make that point because I, I, I can quote someone who, who did. I was talking to Michael Needham, who runs Heritage Action for America, which is the Heritage Foundation's kind of right-wing grassroots group supplementing their think tank. Uh, and the point he made about this bill was, look, if you pass a really structurally disastrous bill that takes the that doesn't deliver benefits for voters in 2018, 2020, you're going to have a Democrat win at some point. He was suggesting maybe 2020. Democrat win by promising single payer. I mean, he was pretty explicit, saying if you do this wrong, you're going to create the conditions for single payer because you will have gone through a period where people will say, well, cobbling together this market clutch didn't work, so what, what will fix it? And a Democrat will come in and say, I'm ready to break it in half. And frankly, uh, I've kind of just had spitballing conversations with a few Democrats about this. I haven't found anyone really proposing something concrete. But for some Republicans, uh, sorry, for some for some Democrats, you're going to have this situation where, well, obviously the, the most effective way to pass a giant bill is not to just ram it through without a fast CBO score and go through reconciliation. But they will notice that Republicans are breaking the stance for giant entitlement reforms. And if, uh, if this does pass the way that Republicans have structured, if it passes, you know, 51 vote, reconciliation, uh, followed by regulation, followed by 60-vote threshold bills, they're going to say, all right, well, we win. Uh, we're going to take 51 votes and do Medicare for all now. Uh, it's it's it deficit so we can do it. Try to stop us. And I feel not enough Republicans have really thought about the implications if that happened. I want to turn to some questions about the media. A lot of people, as I'm sure you're very aware, have a lot of hate for political reporting um, mm-hmm. because of uh, tendencies for groupthink around conventional horse race narratives, amongst other things. Um, you are typically an exception to this hate. Um, as a non-hated political reporter, <laughs> what what do you make of, of these uh, complaints, which I'm sure you hear a lot of about political reporting, and I've seen you make yourself at times? Um, do you think that they're they're fair? I'm not trying to dodge it, but could you delineate like what's one that I could I could judge whether it's fair or not? Because I think um, people have a tendency to people have a tendency to say the media and they they rope in everything from you know columnists they don't like to CNN pundits they don't like to and that they don't mean to, but they might be including like the hardworking data reporter at the Columbus Dispatch who's doing actual stuff that matters. 
Um, so sure. what, do you, what do you mean and in particular? As, as, as a member of uh, this much derided yeah. club, I should uh, be more careful about uh, casting such broad aspersions. But uh, I guess one example would be during uh, the, the primary, um, the, both primaries, um, initially starting out uh, uh, political reporters at major papers by uh, accepting the conventional wisdom that the anointed candidates from both parties uh, were the people to watch and anyone offering alternative messages, uh, however mm-hmm. good or utterly horrifying those alternative messages might have been, um, uh, weren't worth worth listening to. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. That, that's interesting the way you put it. Uh, I think they were... I don't think the, the, the collective uh, wisdom was that the alternative candidates weren't worth listening to. It was that, it was how much are you going to spend covering people who probably can't win? And that uh, is a... It was based on a couple of notions, right, that I think a lot of people assumed to be true. I didn't necessarily. I mean, I, I was covering Trump early, and I was covering Bernie early, and I hope I hope it's clear from <laughs> tweets that are still out there that I never for a second thought Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush would be the nominee. I thought the comparison between <laughs> – not for one second. I, never, I thought the – there's a very facile comparison between Jeb Bush's, quote-unquote, inevitability and Hillary's inevitability. Um, among them – that Bush always pulled like garbage against Democrats compared compared to where his brother was in 1989, uh, continuing with the fact that he just didn't have the relationships with Republican voters and and kind of influencers that Hillary did. But I'm kind of going on a tangent. Uh, So I think that it was more the problem with a lot of journalism uh, that you're referring to is, is kind of a desire to be savvy. And some of that is resource decisions saying, well, how much are we going to spend throwing something on the trail on the plane with this guy who probably won't win. Uh, some of it is just, you know, you get burned sometimes if you're investing heavily in some candidate and he gets 2% of the vote, you, f- you feel silly. So how much should you, should you be exploring that? Uh, so I think early on, it's pretty, you can defend uh, the, the choices people made to cover and not cover. You needed to wait for a breakout moment or a poll or something like that suggesting it. Um, in that period, it's good to send people out to do a why is this guy running or what is the support for this guy story. And I I did some of that. I mean, I did that with, um, with Bernie. I did with Tr- Trump in August 2015 in Michigan, just going around. And I'm not like the, the best Charles Corral person, but you know, just starting random conversations with people uh, in the places that are now incredibly shop-worn cliches, like bars outside UAW plants and what have you. And finding everyone was like, eh, well, you know, give, might be interesting. <laughs> Realizing from that that people had real problems with uh, just like what they saw as the the, the leadership of both parties. So I think it, 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 that was worth covering pretty early on, maybe September, October 2015. And the resistance you still saw was from pundits who I think considered themselves savvy, not just because they, you know, anointed themselves because they did the traditional sourcing that you expect to do if you're a reporter, right? They had, they knew tons and tons of, uh, of Republican strategists or democratic strategists. They had worked their way into, you know, getting off the record on the record calls from, from all the people who, who were, who usually decide things in, in these sorts of races. And they were accurately reflecting what they were saying, which was, Oh, settle it out. I mean, there's a, that kind of classic story by, Jonathan Martin from the uh, New York Times, who I think is absolutely one of the best political reporters going generally, um, 
I mean, from from like at least once every two weeks, he's got a story that totally nails the moment we're in. But he had one in, uh, I think, September 2015 about how Republican strategists saw the rise of Trump as good for Jeb Bush because it was dominating all this all this headline territory so that no Bush opponent could break out. And every Republican strategist who was in orbit thought, well, that means it's good for Jeb because he's the guy with the most money and he's the guy with the most institutional support. So eventually it'll break his way because it clearly can't go Trump's way. Uh, that was not right. Uh, with, the, with the Democratic race, I actually thought um, the coverage, because of the polling, because the crowds Bernie was getting, I thought even the horse race coverage was, was pretty good. At, uh, what was less good sometimes was explaining why this particular message was so important, was so popular. But some of it was was great. I mean, Business Week had a story right before the Iowa caucuses, you know, cover story with Bernie, lots of time spent on his message explaining why younger voters who, who we thought might just be natural Democrats or something felt so left out of the economic system left behind by the baby boomers, right? Like, I think there was really good contextual coverage of that. But I think the problem was a little bit later when um, – you know, it was just a question of when Bernie would drop out, which is which to me wasn't super interesting. Um, uh, so that's that's like a long-winded answer because I actually I do think it's it's complicated. And when I define the media, I'm defining I'm kind of putting all of it. Now, if I were to go back and and talk about like cable TV, I think it was 90% dreadful um, because cable TV was mostly check out this Trump rally, check out these pundits respond to the Trump rally, and then maybe you know 10% of the time we're going to reserve for everything else, literally everything else happening in this election. Um, that was pretty bad. <laughs> it's, it's, not, not to, what you, to what degree do you think that? To what degree do you think that free advertising for Trump uh, was pivotal in getting him elected? Uh, I think a huge degree. I think had he, let's say, we had the old fairness doctrine caps on coverage or responses, I don't think he would have won, won the nomination. I think he would have done very well. But uh, there was there would have been a completely different conversation, uh, and there wouldn't have been the sense that he was. Uh, he was running running away with things and dominating the conversation because he wouldn't have been dominating the conversation. He would have there would have been responses to everything he did. Uh, so I think he would have still would have done very well. I mean, the politics he was advertising, which I'd say are very diff- different than what re- Republicans other Republicans ran on. I mean, starting with entitlements, for example, uh, continuing with with trade, like that stuff had an audience. But the fact that it was on TV all the time meant that the election was set up with whether you were voting for Trump or voting for somebody else. And you know, that's even if he hadn't won, that's a pretty enviable position to be in. Uh, I want to like steal a point from Matt Taibbi, too, which is there were Trump was getting all this attention and more importantly, like the arena filling enthusiasm at the same time he was. Um, but there is an implicit bias, I think, in cable, the way cable covers things. Again, not the way everyone covers things. Um, Cable TV, we've been sensitized to expect a certain amount of like violence and mudslinging and controversial comment. The word controversial is so useless, but you know, controversiality on uh, controversy to use a word that exists <laughs> on on TV. And so Trump was kind of running right down the lane of what you're used to seeing on TV, whereas Bernie was giving the same 45 minute speech about why we should be more like Norway. And it seemed it would seem to a cable programmer. I'm, oh, I'm making a political statement by putting on this Bernie speech. This is a lot of content that's really, you know, this is really far left. I mean, this isn't mainstream as I understand it. There's just like a, a complicated set of, of of news decisions that were, I think people just uh, didn't make because it was it seemed ideological to run 
kind of Bernie speech, in a way it didn't with, with Trump. It seemed like it was entertainment because a lot of news had become entertainment. <laughs> like the, the triple tragedy being like, I, I think few people in, in politics have a keener understanding of what has happened to the media than Bernie does. Bernie was writing and talking about this years ago, about how the media was turning politics into a, a just a, a game of insults and counterreactions and stupidity. And then he had to watch what one watch it get proved by Donald Trump to watch his own coverage dwindle because everyone was running, running to cover Trump instead. Do to what degree do you think the cable television sins, which are real and profound and widespread, um, mm-hmm. are unfairly conflated with with um, the with print media's track record on this? Do you think do you think that print um, reporters, political reporters were quick enough to to pick up on Bernie? There was a there was a study from the mm-hmm. Shorenstein Center at at Harvard. I think it was I don't know when it was released, but it, it, it found that the a lack of coverage, especially during the invisible primary um, in 2015, um, ultimately proved really debilitating in terms of at that point when Bernie did break out, um, it was too too late in terms of getting his name out to enough people to beat Clinton. If they're conflated, well, I guess so. Who, who could have used that coverage of Bernie that didn't get it, right? Uh, I think it would have. Let's let's say if I'm Bernie, I probably think it is the occasional consumer of news who lives in South Carolina, who just or the rest of the South who who had an early primary and just like didn't really see what Bernie was about uh, and was introduced kind of late in the game by TV ads. I think there are reasons to people decide not to vote for him. But uh, in, in a lot, I mean, like there were some early early voting states uh, where they were not quite, they didn't quite get the whole story of the election. And I'd say that was more TV than the print. I mean, looking at the print, I think it was pretty decent, but you just had a lot of people not reading it. Um, no, but so I'm going to get into. I'm going to defend some of the way that Hillary was covered versus Bernie because this has become so sore since the election. There's an idea that a system that you can define uh, you know, from everything to from the DNC to the media being part of the same the, the same the same deal. Um, there's an idea that the system was rigged against Bernie. Um, I think actually, if you were saying that Hillary Clinton was the by far and away front runner that most Democrats wanted to be their nominee, you were like correct the whole time. Uh, you were correct. One that she had locked up. She didn't like bribe senators to get them to support her. She had won them over with a career in Washington that was about as long as Bernie's, and then won them over in the period between her 2008 loss and running. I mean, a lot, especially a lot of people who were had backed Obama over her. Uh, and so, like the the coverage of that, I'd say, were totally fair. If you were in the media and saying that it means something that all these Democratic influencers have backed her, you also, in some states, reported that, and it didn't matter. I mean, every New Hampshire Democrat with any elected office, basically, Hillary, and she lost by 22 points, right? So it wasn't clear that voters being super influenced by that kind of coverage. I think it was more just because the you, we're not in the business of just printing the entire Bernie Sanders campaign platform in the paper every day. You didn't see it, whereas, <laughs> whereas cable news did decide to just, just let Trump ramble endlessly, interrupting their programming, I mean, like – uh, do, yeah, run the election. Maybe run the election where you take half of that TV time for Trump and give it to Bernie instead. That'd be very different. Yeah, I mean, and I think you're right about a lot of that. And I also think that's thinking strategically from the left that it's important that uh, people don't engage in too much conspiracism about why Bernie lost, because that is 
ends up being a way to evade doing the hard work of of understanding mm-hmm. um, why this might be a, a moment of historic possibility for the left that we haven't seen in a very long time. Right. But I'm, that I'm we just playing along quite with ready how the media covered it. I think if you, you're right. Yeah. I mean, like, or let's imagine a world in which Trump is not the nominee and there is a 15 candidate Republican race and there's a Bernie versus Hillary race. I think you would have had a ton more coverage of the Democratic race issue to issue in a way that probably would have benefited Bernie. One thing that sticks out about political reporting about the left is that um, political reporters rarely seem to get that the left is a thing that exists independently of the, quote, Democratic Party's liberal base. Um, do you agree that that reporting is is often muddled? You mentioned the other day that it might be your background in libertarian politics um, that gives you a clearer view of non-establishment politics of all sorts. I think that's it. I think I've been very I've been unlucky in my career and I've been fired twice, but I've been lucky in that I chose. Some, oh, we're getting to that. <laughs> OK, I chose some. I, I got some jobs. I just I choose some. I didn't get some. I did uh, got jobs that involved covering something from an ideological perspective. And that meant I kind of was interested in different sources. Uh, that meant I didn't really need to cultivate the the spokesman from the top, I was going to be hanging out with, with grassroots activists. And that's, I mean, I like that more too. I generally have a better time at like an indivisible meeting than I do at a press conference or forget a press conference. No one likes this. <laughs> like a background conversation with a, a white house aide or something. I'm going to have them, but I just, uh, my, my general view of, of all politics is that it, there is a group of, there's a big group of voters who want the system to be bent in their direction and politicians either listen to them or lose. So, of course, the, the, the groups of voters are more interested in the politicians themselves. Politicians, uh, mes- I find their messaging interesting sometimes because I'm watching them adapt to what people are saying. I just wrote a thing today about the the Democrat running, kind of running ahead of everyone in, in New Jersey this year, who is a former Goldman Sachs banker, an Obama appointee, so not really uh, attuned to what I'd say if you could design a Bernie candidate alive, it would not be him. And he's not a Bernie candidate. <laughs> but I mean, one of his main campaign planks in his ads is getting hedge funds out uh, completely out of the state pension system, which is a progressive cause I first heard about from, I don't know, six six years ago, just you know talking to people like David Sirota. And that is something he adopted. Or, or look at the Virginia race for governor, where Tom Perriello and Ralph Northam, who represent different wings of the party, if you're being lazy about it, where both of them want a $15 minimum wage in Virginia. And again, they didn't like Perriello didn't wake up one day and say, "I'm going to make, I'm going to run on this." I think voters like it. They understood that uh, their electorate and then probably the broader electorate both wanted those things. So I always, I, I, the way I covered this stuff. I mean, I, I just, I guess I wasn't that interested in the great man theory of things. I'm more in like the great mass mobilization theory of why anything happens in politics. And then I saw that. So I saw that through libertarians in 2006 and seven and eight. And then when I covered the tea party, that was, I mean, I, I didn't find the question super interesting you know, whether Republicans were going to lose primaries. Certainly there was, a, there was a good vector for covering it, but whether Republicans were losing primaries or they could control the, the political process the way they wanted to, it was interesting it was, how politics changed when thousands of people show up at town halls and say, don't vote for this. You actually get to slow down um, what people were elected to do. Uh, that's been interesting to me, much more than I don't know, like 90% of, of like the, the top of the iceberg coverage. 
Well, Warren, as an aside, Warren Buffett would probably just call not uh, investing pension funds in hedge funds just common sense, uh, <laughs> a common sense investing strategy. But um, one thing that I've, having known a lot of alternative and mainstream uh, reporters over the years, is that it seems that one reason that reporters have a sort of uh, blind spot for the left left, like the socialist left, mm-hmm. um, is that most reporters are liberal Democrats um, and their milieu, their social milieu is of liberal Democrats. And it's sort of it seems like it might be hard for them to fathom that there's a sizable group of people to their left that combined with the fear that conservatives will accuse them of, of liberal bias. Do you think those two things play a role? Huh. Well, so are you talking about how the, the, they're liberal Democrats in, in like the bad sense where they're the, they're the key tutting um, liberals who always assume the left is up to no good, or you mean just in general they're, they're, they they slant left? How do you how do you define that? I mean, they more like slant uh, Democratic Party establishment. They uh, believe in you know some um, moderate uh, after tax redistribution, oh, okay. uh, pro choice, um, socially liberal. Obviously, have no problem with gay people, um, but um, um, and that's probably been their milieu since at least college and so it's it, something like either bernie kratz or people farther to to the left than that um sort of don't 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 fit in a spectrum at which they quietly consider themselves to be the left of uh that makes sense i think it's it might just be a little more crude than that that it's that reporters pay attention to who wins and the left as as we're defining it in this conversation doesn't usually win uh didn't win in 2016 i mean there were candidates who ran, I think, more boldly progressive campaigns than Hillary Clinton, who ran behind her or lost. And, you know, not every race is in a Petri dish. There are candidates who, uh, McGovern being the best example, right? Like George McGovern loses by a landslide that I think changes the entire history of the Democratic Party because of the actors who end up reforming it in a more corporate direction after 1972. But if you ta- if you run that race again and McGovern just like chooses a running mate who doesn't drop out in a scandal... Then you probably eh, maybe McGovern, but based on the polling trends, and I've kind of went back and looked at them and read historians. You know, he loses like a forty to ten state landslide. So it's it's just it's just structured differently. It's the parties still have, but it's not a. It, it, it changes what they think is possible in politics and why they think he lost. So you, you don't have great many tests of this, but in general, I mainly just there are cities that I think get run in this direction, but. Um, but not entirely. I mean, if, you're, if, if a reporter comes from a, a smaller uh, urban area and then moves up to the national political beat, they've probably seen a lot of interactions uh, where cities in order to, are fighting with unions or cutting costs in some way. And I, I think they just they don't have any examples of the left succeeding. Now, what we do have are, uh, are examples, I think, of, of the right failing more recently, uh, Kansas being a really good one, <laughs> like a lot more uh, – less skepticism among Kansas Democrats of the Bernie strategy because they've seen what happens running in the other direction. And it's not as colored by, I mean, there are, not, there are fewer pundits running out to defend the, the Kansas experiment under Sam Brownback, right? But no, I think I think it's just, it's fairly, um, base is kind of a loaded word, but fairly, fairly evidence-based. It's just, there hasn't been much writing about the left because where has the left pulled off what it's talking about and done a, a good job? And there, there might be a failure of imagination on some of that, but I've seen pretty good reporting on, for example, like the Seattle uh, minimum wage experiment. Um, the, thing, the results that have kind of debunked a lot of the generic wisdom. And 
I, there, one other point here. I don't think reporters are influenced terribly by like the owners of the of the of the company. Some cases they are. Some cases there's a veto, and you'll hear about the owner of a paper not wanting coverage of X or Y in it, cutting it out. Um, you know, the Reno, the, the Sheldon Adelson's ownership of the paper in Nevada is a good example. Well, I think so. There's been a lot, a lot of money has been spent over time to fund and expand the influence of conservative think tanks, or even think tanks that be defined as centrist but have fairly right-leaning views of, of of where we should go. You know, the status quo is good, except we need to cut entitlements. That's that's a position, for example, of like the Center for um, Responsible Federal Budget, which is always quoted. I think was quoted four times in the presidential debates as the authority on on debt spending. Uh, and there's actually, as a side note, like uh, one video clip I discovered after the election that I found very funny. It was that was it was mentioned once in the Democratic debates, and as a as a lead up to a question about Bernie Sanders' budget and how much we'd spend, and he just rolled his eyes <laughs> behind his glasses, knowing that you quote them if you're going to say, oh, of course we need to cut entitlements, of course we need to, we get we give out too much in in social welfare, et cetera. Uh, so like those institutions, I think. Uh, there's been a ton of money on purpose to influence and fund more right-leaning research and opinion or more center-right research and opinion. And so that that has a slant, too, in terms of just if, if reporters are trying to jump into something maybe for the first time. It happens a lot, you know, where we have to be dilettante sometimes and write about a policy that we maybe just heard about for the first time. There's a little bit of leaning on people who had an agenda that's been in place and that was the reason they exist. I can confirm that it's hard to be a reporter without uh, not being a uh, without being a dilettante from yeah. time to time. Um, so, so th- yeah, I I I I see how that um, that that uh, sort of center centrist slash center right bias is uh, baked in. But what um, what accounts for the right wing and, and and conservative social movements, which seem to have an entire press corps? dedicated to parsing their every move. Um, one particular salient moment was coverage of Richard Spencer and the big white nationalist confab he had in D.C. after the election, where he inf- infamously gave Trump a Nazi salute and called the press, uh, called for them to be referred to as the Lügenpresse or something like that. My German's not as good as his uh, lying press. I think press. it's the yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Um, so obviously, you know, he's atrocious and his movement ties to the White House are uh, scary. But there were 200 odd people there, I think, for a national conference, which is not such an enormous crowd. And you've noted that there was about one journalist in attendance for every two attendees. By contrast, you said mm-hmm. there was one reporter for every thousand attendees at the Progressive Roots Camp. Why is it that the right gets so much more coverage than the left? I mean, in the media's defense, this could be in part due to the fact that the right has had its shit very much together um, for the past few decades, while the left has been, at least until recently, um, quite a mess. What do you think is going on? I like the way you put it at the end, although I would add this caveat that I think there are far more, at this point, far more national reporters whose beat is the right, generally speaking, than there is like the labor movement, uh, or even the evangelical right than there is the labor movement. There are more, there's a little more expertise, there's a more fun beat. Um, I think that's a little different than what I was saying before. Not that you asked the wrong question, I just was answering it part by part, because I do think reporters generally, who's a reporter now? Uh, this is this is true here, it's true in Britain, uh, it has lots of different effects. The reporter now basically 
somebody who went to who whose parents could afford or who, who who or to at least help them get through a liberal liberal arts education uh who lived in a fairly diverse city for a while and then moved to dc or new york that is generally who the press corps is there are some exceptions but that is the shared experience that they have most in common just like the shared experience of the senate is like going to law school so i think there is a sense that there we are we missing something have we, what have we missed? We should talk to the validators on the right and talk to you know conservatives at the super local level to see what we're missing. And uh, some of that has been done with I think what um, I'm sure somebody else called it working the rest before Eric Alterman, but I always think of Eric Alterman's critique of this. Uh, there, a lot of this is working the rest. A lot of this is people saying that the media is biased, so you need to be listening to these guys on the right, and we take some cues from that. Partly, I, I, I've always done so, partly because it was the first beat I covered, partly because it's fun and interesting. And the ideological tussles, I think, are kind of fascinating, have a huge role on policy, especially at a time when they run two-thirds of the country. So I, I think it's. I think that's what we're a lot of it comes from. And you um, have guys giving Nazi salutes. I mean, that's <laughs> And when it came to Richard Spencer, I mean, that was, uh, that was getting attention before the election. I honestly think had, had Hillary won the election, the Richard Spencer, Miley Yiannopoulos, um, all, all that that vector, the, I guess the, like 4chan America, would, would have become, uh, I think, also a huge story because you would have had a female president who... Uh, you know, Trump wins at 46% and everyone needs to bend over backwards to say why the real America is the one that voted for Trump. Had Hillary won with 48%, you know, plus the vote she needed in, in, the, in the swing states, this story would have been this president with no mandate who only won by attacking her opponent. And I think the, the alt-right and the white nationalist renaissance would have been a huge story, just as it has, has been in Europe. I mean, the National Front has never won anything bigger than like a like a string of regional elections or like European parliamentary election in France, right? But it, National Front has been the story in France. It's either why Hollande is failing or how the NF is growing, uh, or FFN, sorry for being, Fran- for being correct with French. Um, that for like years, I mean, as long as I've been paying attention, uh, that's, that's, that's been the way people see the, the politics pivoting. And I, I think part of that is same, same situation there. You had a class that didn't come from the uh, national front voting base. So that is the exotic thing that you need to explain. And not just that, it's the thing you might think you're not uh, taken seriously enough. That's where the working the rest comes in. I, I, and they're, they're like really well-funded organizations in D.C., especially like the Media Research Center. I guess they're in Alexandria, but they're, they're in the D.C. area where people are in like elite of the elite within D.C. Uh, every Republican elected to office is doing pretty well. They're in the elite. But they know that they can kind of get the media back on its heels by claiming there's bias and claiming they don't understand uh, the real America. So they do so. We'll be back with more of this interview in a moment. But first, I want to thank you for listening. And I also want to ask you for money. We are getting so much great feedback on this show, and our audience is growing fast. Please find us on patreon.com to support us financially. Even a few bucks a month is extraordinarily helpful. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and just search for The Dig, and it will explain how you can support us. Thanks. Democratic Socialists of America, of which, full disclosure, I am a member, has grown from 6,000 members in January 2015 to more than 18,000 today. Huge numbers of people 
are attending regular chapter meetings in Boston, New York, Philly, and other cities. Chapters are popping up all over the place, including uh, quite red places, mm-hmm. by which I mean red in the Republican map sense rather yeah. than the commie. Yeah, that still pisses one, me off. Um, the one country where you, when you say red, you mean right wing. It's really distracting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it seems like some sort of intellectual property violation or so, I don't know. It seems wrong to me as well. Um, I but I could I couldn't find a single mention of DSA in the New York Times either this year or last. And the Washington Post has only mentioned a handful of times. Has each time, me? notably below your byline. All right. Um, <laughs> now, if there was a group on the right with with this level of grassroots mobilization. Um, underway, it's hard for me to believe that it wouldn't be being covered all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, think, do, do you think that's do you think that's fair? I think you're right. Um, I think this, the DSA story has been changing. I, I frankly am taking myself because I've been working on a DSA story for weeks and keep getting windswept by developments in Congress. So I'm going to finish it really soon. And I feel like at this point I'm, go, I'm doing catch up after having kind of been early to it. Um, but no, uh, similar organizations, if they're on the right, tend to get that coverage. Uh, they will. And the other thing, when I refer to working the refs, I should note a lot of these groups once you co- once they're covered will say. Uh, that they're not being treated fairly, that the, they're being treated anthro- anthropologically, et cetera. I think, I think that might end up happening with the DSA. Uh, no, I think you're right. Uh, 18,000 is a good number to start with because the Heritage, Heritage Action for America has 19,000 uh, sentinels, like lo- local activists who uh, they count on to go to town halls and organize events in their districts. So that it's literally the same size of, of, a, of a base that DSA claims right now. And obviously, I, I mean, I, I quoted Heritage Action at the start of this. They still have a ton of clout and attention. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we did write about the growth of, at the Washington Post, we did write about, one, the growth of DSA a little bit, two, the, the acceptance of socialism among younger voters. And I just thought that was a fascinating and new story. And uh, my my like, what I'm happiest is, is less when I've got like an interview with a senator that really nails it. Is when I'm happiest. I look back at something I wrote two years ago, and I and I said this this might be coming, and then it then it happened. And so like I'm interested in it just because I I can see a world not to get ever too excited. I can see a world in like five years where there's like DSA members proudly being elected to office and holding the balance of power in some city council or some state, right? I mean, I, I, I always look for the thing that might be, might have enough momentum in politics to change what is, what is possible. And so DSA looks that way to me, but it's, I mean, like there have been a ton of liberal groups that have not gotten there. And I feel the other correction, I, or not correction, the other amendment I'd make to this is I do think the media is very good at jumping on specific interest groups that are broadly part of the left. Uh, I think dreamers, for example, immigrants rights groups, um, I think drug legalization groups, not that they're necessarily of the left, but you know, if you break down who votes for marijuana legalization amendment, it's usually mostly liberals. Uh, those groups I think are pretty well covered. Uh, and it's, they're, they're looking for specific policy changes, sometimes looking for them as without the lobbying both parties. So, but like a, a specific left-wing group like the DSA, I don't think has been covered in quite the same way. Maybe that's going to be changing a little bit. Well, maybe we need uh, to do a better job learning from the right and uh, yeah. working the refs, uh, which is maybe what I'm <laughs> doing. Maybe. Well, I, already last kinda, I already kind of tried to do it, but yeah. Yeah, you already worked. You already well worked over uh, <laughs> from all directions. <laughs> um, 
pivoting back to, to politics, um, one thing that it seems, well, I guess this is a media question too, that the media uh, got wrong on the right, um, and I imagine you have some perspective on this, was the notion a few years back that young people were embracing libertarianism in mass and were going to take over the Republican Party. That obviously didn't happen, and Rand Paul turned out to be a pretty big dud. What, what do you think uh, happened? Well, there? I think some of that was uh, there. There was a sense among young voters that things were were messed up. And there's a, there's like a a way that like Hamilton Nolan would say this. That is is, is I, I'll quote him then instead of stay cursing myself. That a sense that shit is fucked up and bullshit, right? And I feel that. Uh, libertarianism has has some answers to that. Especially the the Ron Paul kind of libertarianism has some direct answers. It's like you're right, things are bad. It is because there is this crazy globalist economic system and this Federal Reserve that's unaccountable, and uh, they're ripping you off. So they're the reason that that we had a financial crisis. You, you can basically you have the a lot of the enemies that I think you have on the left. You also had in the Ron Paul libertarian right, but for different reasons, right? You I mean, you had the sense that uh, the sense that basically there there are powerful people letting bankers get away with everything that was there in the Ron Paul vision of things too. Uh, so what I think I, I wrote a little about this too. I mean, I, as I saw Rand Paul not getting anywhere, I mean, I found a lot of crossover people who were who were going to vote for either Rand or Bernie, and then increasingly it was hard to find people who were. Uh, who were for Bernie who would ever go for Rand because they all moved over and they said, well, yeah, my my problem was that the system seemed to be broken. And if you add on top of that um, these like concrete reforms that are going to make it easier for me to get out of debt after college, then yeah, I'm all for that. So they were not like super ideological libertarians. They just agreed that everything was rigged against them. And I feel like libertarians, uh, it's amazing that they had that in the first place. Because when in power, they usually try to make sure that there's as little regulation as possible, which is what banks want. Uh, but I, I think with the rise of democratic socialism, something acceptable, especially for young voters. I don't know where people are going to jump and come in and join libertarians. I, I, I think there's a, a lot of room for the movement on other policies, on criminal reform, on drugs, etc. But in terms of being the, the hot thing for a young person to do, I think that's faded a lot. One thing that was um, notable recently in media coverage um, was the the glowing response in many quarters, um, particularly on TV, but not exclusively, to Trump just somewhat calmly uh, being able to read a teleprompter during his address to Congress without digressing into wild conspiracy theories or making personal attacks on his enemies. Is it is it fair to say that what upsets a lot of Many reporters about Trump um, is not so much his policies, but his failure to be uh, um, to follow norms of of decorum and, and other political norms. What upsets uh, too much? I think yeah, too much of the when the media gets in high dudgeon about Trump is when he says something that blows up a norm. And I mean, who cares about norms anymore? Um, <laughs> the media kind of do. Uh, as somebody who tries to spend as little as much as time not in D.C. I find that most people don't give a crap. Like they're, they're the thing that was worrying. If you do care about the norms of the Senate, for example, was you, I found a, you would find, and I found a lot of voters in you know swung back and forth between the parties who were frustrated that like Barack Obama just couldn't exert his will in a, in like a classic Mussolini huh. sort of way. They interpreted that as weak, and, they, and like, well, if Trump won't do that. Trump's gonna Trump's gonna knock heads together. So like, there's a there was a confusion about why. 
uh, in terms of how government works, why people can't get stuff done faster. I mean, I found that a lot with people who were making excuses to vote for Trump, and that is something that we were supposed to, as civic as civic educators, supposed to say, no, 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 there's a reason why all this is really slow and clunky. Um, when it comes to him kicking people out of the briefing rooms and stuff, like I, I'm in this odd position where I, I, I think it's great when reporters don't go to these briefings. Because like the, the maxim <laughs> that uh, Robert Novak had about this, uh, who was you know, very right-wing, but I think completely right about this, uh, was that in unlike all political reporting, you're either a source or you're a target. And if you op- open yourself up and let reporters talk to you, no matter what they're writing, unless it is confirming the details of like the murder you committed, uh, th- there, it's never going to be as harsh because it's going to have your side in there. And also just because people are humans, they're going to look into your eyes and see where you're coming from, or at least see how you're lying to them. Where if they cut you off, uh, all they have to go on is document hunting and accountability and talking to your critics, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, there's much better reporting done uh, without the White House. I, it's like, what what good reporting is... Without what, the access. What, what good reporting is done by just ask, you know, proving that Sean Spicer will say anything? I mean, it's kind of funny. Uh, it's, 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 it's interesting to have him on the record saying that, ha-ha, Trump was lying this whole time about about the jobs numbers, and it turns out he believes these ones. That's not that high. Like, who cares? <laughs> like, you gotta, we all pay a guy to lie to us. That's whatever. So, I mean, the, the I think that it, it's, it's actually a mistake the White House is making that I can see them, I, I can imagine a world in which they do really badly in the midterms, and they hire like people to correct course and try to fix this, and what they would fix is letting more people in, because it's better for them if you have reporters on the plane, the, the president's shooting the breeze with them. I mean, like the, the but the bias, the way that access affects this. I mean, I I think there were a lot of times where Trump got more, I, not friendlier coverage, uh, but less point by point critical coverage because he was so willing to talk to reporters, have press conferences, or call them for a story. Whereas Clinton Clinton's campaign was so calcified from the experience of they had in the White House, her and Bill had in the White House, so crit. So awkward around reporters that like a person who's actually and bunker yeah bunker, bunker mentality, mentality. Like a more concise way of the thing I was trying to wrap my tongue around um, the, the, <laughs> the I think she like left a lot of goodwill on the floor by not talking to reporters more I don't know what the worst was going to happen I thought some of her best coverage ended up coming when she just had like three minutes of talking to reporters on her plane every day uh, much more positive coverage and sometimes it was about WikiLeaks sometimes it wasn't I mean the other thing is. There's theoretically nothing stopping a reporter right now from just going up to every senator and saying, did you vote for that bill because of the $400,000 that you got from the oil industry or something? Nothing theoretically that stops them, but there's generally a decorum that you engage in if you are talking to them every day. Whereas if if they shut you off, you're like, all right, well, I'm going to go investigate my thing about um, how how corrupt you are. That's fine. Come and leave me out. So I I think reporters spend a little bit too, too much time worrying that it's good. Like someone has to worry about it because you don't want a situation where it's just like Nicolas Maduro locked in a palace doing a radio show from time to time. You want, you want to make sure that like there's access to the media guests and it's important to get the president on record. This one though, it's the weird thing about this president uh, that I, I, it's become more clear as I've been writing about the, the, the healthcare debate is typically like when the president says something either at a meeting or in public that is a statement that policy will be built around and he will try to stick to because generally it's bad if you say X and then you're like, never mind why. That's usually bad. You usually try to do that. This guy will just say anything. 
there's there's situations I've seen where it's like I'm not sure what the good was of getting the guy on the record. Like it's interesting, but he's, I mean, we're talking about somebody who's quoted the CBO, I think on Twitter even like 26 times as as like a reason why Obama's policies are bad. And now if you ask about the CBO, it's like yeah, it doesn't matter. So uh, there's a hypocrisy story you can write, but generally it's it's um it's just a different dynamic than getting a president on the record before. It's more interesting, but it's it's in the way that like an exploding car is more interesting than one that like drives safely to and from somebody's home uh, and meets the speed limit, right? Like the one that gets into a gigantic wreck is way more interesting. So I think that's the same thing happening here. And if it gets into a gigantic wreck every day and the media is constantly just pointing out the hypocrisy and distance between right. Trump's statements and actions. Um, I think that's an important thing the media has to do. But um, I mean, people, it, w- w- one wonders what impact that ultimately has. A uh, really bad one. I mean, I, I feel like the, that's one thing that worried me after the election is, is, is if, if the rewards of just saying whatever you think uh, are that you, you get elected, then people are going to do it. And I've noticed that, I mean, it's not the same thing. But I was writing a story today about Republicans, you know, they're really kind of facing a deficit to win the governor's race in uh, New Jersey and the governor's race in Virginia. They're kind of in a hole. It's going to be tarp. So they're trying to focus on like how these Democrats have said, um, have like uh, compared the election of Trump to you know, the Nazis or to 9-11 there. And I've noticed the Democrats' response is like, yeah, I said it, whatever. <laughs> like they're just, you can't watch a Trump win an election and say, boy, I better watch my mouth. Why would it not drag? Why would it not drag all the standards down? Trump not only transcended the gaffe, but he defeated it. The whole concept of the gaffe for for everyone, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, returning briefly to the address to the joint session of Congress and the coverage of it, it it, it seems to me that many many political reporters also have. Um, not so much a political bias, but a narrative bias towards a shift in the narrative. In this case, the pivot, um, the idea that right. Trump has reset his relationship with the American people. Um, what's your assessment of, of the coverage of, of that? Uh, obviously, the address got uh, blown up by, you know, uh, I forget what this uh, the scandal. Oh, it was Jeff Sessions scandal, uh, the Russia, Russia mm-hmm. thing. Um, but w- what did you make of the the brief honeymoon that Trump got? Well, again, I think it was more slanted towards uh, credulous TV reporting than to print reporting. I think uh, because it's over now, but so during the campaign, Trump was so unspecific about who, what he would do on various policies that you couldn't really nail him down and say he promised this and then he changed and then he changed it to this. That, that kind of started uh, once he became president and said he wants this from healthcare. Oh, here's the actual bill. So I think like that, that might've been hopefully the last time, where the markers he was putting down were were new and people were trying to judge what he wanted from that. Uh, um, but I think print was much better. I mean, like, so the point of a presidential speech is not to like really dazzle uh, the, like, uh, like you're giving a monologue. It is to say things that can be used by your party or the members of the party you need to pass your agenda. And he didn't really do that. So I thought print pretty a good job. And TV just has this, you know, this way of looking for the theatrics of something and how it was handled. And I think that that was pretty, pretty terrible, mostly. <laughs> the, the coverage of this was really credulous. And I, I didn't pay. So uh, laying over all this, I just I just don't watch much of this. I, I really and I haven't boycotted 
cable news in a serious way. I just I just don't really like it. Uh, I watched it through news on. I'm going to watch um, Bernie on Chris Hayes from West Virginia tonight. And I kind of wish I was there, but couldn't get there that day. I, I like that. I like interviews and uh, the, but the punditry is just like I I don't know how people watch that for fun. <laughs> like even even when I do it, I'm, I, I, I part part of my brain says why 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 do you have me explain this? Just like show what the guy's saying and then show a fact check on it. To the extent like cable does that, it's great. But what the worst it can do is say, um, "Hey, imaginary, theoretical, but very you know, very representative reporter who doesn't actually know the policy stakes of this thing, uh, how did it look?" And they'll say, "Well, it looked pretty good." Because it's way easier than than getting into whether, um, for example, the creating a program within DHS to track immigrant crime um, is legal or moral or whatever. It's much easier to say, well, you know, I look commanding doing it. So I think that's, that's really bad and people should stop watching it. Um, <laughs> that's just my take. I uh, co-signed. Um, Trump has led um, many in the mainstream media world to reevaluate certain norms um, traditionally defended on the grounds of objectivity, neutrality, Balance. Right. A case, obvious case in point would be the Times describing Trump as having lied uh, about the uh, tr- uh, tr- Obama birther um, conspiracy theory. Um, what do you make of this reassessment? Do you think it's productive? Um, do you think it's coming a bit too late? Um, but the change does seem to be real. After all, here you are writing for the Post, a paper from which you resigned in 2010 under fire after. Emails from the journalist listserv were publicized that, among other things, featured you saying uh, unkind things about um, Matt Drudge and Ron Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, the Post even reported that you tweeting about anti-gay marriage bigots was controversial, which doesn't seem like it would be that controversial in 2017. Um, Probably less so. No, and the thing about uh, Ron Paul, which I've um, always stuck my crawl because I know him pretty well and cover him a lot. Was I? I was. Um, I used the, the, the phrase, the phrase "Paul Tards," which is not something I normally ever wrote, just to describe how Fox, Fox, when Ron Paul was running, would cover Ron Paul supporters as like crazy cultist idiots, <laughs> and and once they were like part of the Tea Party, they were cover, you know giving them tons of time and access. And so that was what, the way I put it then. Uh, I don't think that was terribly. I mean, like I, I think they, they were totally within their within their bounds to say I should resign for. Or so I after resigned, and they said yes, indeed you should, for <laughs> for that because it made it made it made other reporters who were trying to be objective um, look bad, and it was dumb of me to write that in the first place. I haven't really like taken gigantic lessons from that. It annoys me that it is still kind of cited by rote, although less and less as an, as proof that the media is secretly conspiring against people. It wasn't that; it was just that I was I was like an asshole on a listserv. Um, so I, I haven't really t- taken lessons from that. What I what I, I think. My own take towards on 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 how we cover all of this is that I uh, lived in I lived in the United Kingdom from '98 to 2000. I was finishing up high school there, and that's I don't know when everyone else like starts paying attention to the media, but definitely the first times I was I was really reading a newspaper and paying attention to anything beyond like movie reviews was when I was there. And the British press is very like honestly stratified between right and left and kind of upper class, lower class newspapers. They're just honest about it. Like there's not the same pretense that um this one even even something that like the Times that's seen as liberal, 
like in the UK, it's the Guardian, and they're like, "Yep, damn right. Like we are a paper of the left. We've always been one." There's just like an uh, the way that the coverage is uh, is framed is is that these papers these papers have a take, and I always liked that. I also the other thing I liked was that they weren't super reverential of politicians. I mean, they were just mocking in ways I thought were kind of fun. So I've my uh, hope has been that we move towards that in this. And you see, you can always the Guardian if it has facts, people respect the facts. But there's not. I I always start felt uh, that if there are opinions uh, in the coverage, or if there are things like everyone on who's covering this beat knows that Trump lied about something, and you are if your standards restrict you from saying that, I don't think that enhances your relationship with the reader. I think the reader is like, why won't this paper admit that this is BS? And a lot of the angry mail I get is along those lines of saying, how come you quoted this guy without saying he's a liar? And sometimes I've read that and said, yeah, good point. I should have had a parenthetical when I mentioned this one thing explaining that it was wrong. Uh, like I shouldn't have just said, this guy said it and others disagree. That I feel like we've fallen down on part of the job if we just let that get, let that get through un- uncorrected, so I think like I think that's good. I think like one one aspect of this is which is more uh, more skepticism of people in power. That's awesome. I mean, they'd see if especially the the majesty and pageantry of the of the of the presidency of the office more, <laughs> of the office. If there's more skepticism than that from now on, that would be good for me. That would be good too, from my perspective. Of, of of from of just from now on, there are fewer people. There's less of well, the president said this statement, and we're going to cut to it live, and we're going to take it for granted. I hope not every president is frequently dishonest as, as this one, but I would not mind if the norm uh, of of like covering them as a as you know, as a transcription service. I hope that wouldn't stop changing. Okay, one last uh, political media question, and then I'm going to ask you about Prague Rock. Um, okay, the, what? Uh, we haven't talked about Russia and Russia coverage yet. Um, what do you make of the criticism from uh, people on the left like Glenn Greenwald, but also Masha Gessen and others that um, journalists and Democrats uh, dovetailing uh, obsession with Russia amounts to hawkish, hawkish chest thumping um, without much of an evidentiary basis um, that Russian influence, whatever that influence was, um, had anything decisively to do uh, with helping Trump win. I mean, I I can say that the effect of this media when I go out to to protest and see MSNBC watching liberals uh, suggesting that, you know, Trump is directly taking orders um, from Putin, mm-hmm. which there's just no evidence of at all. What do you do? Do you think the media um, has approached this correctly? Well, is is there wait? And sorry for saying the no media. <laughs> Well, no, I don't think I don't think there's there's no no I don't think he's getting like thoughts beamed to his skull by like a special pl- implant, but I definitely think that they're listening to Russia's foreign policy demands more than the Obama administration did after the Obama administration kind of failed to to reset relations. I think I think they're clearly friendlier to them. So that but that's the frustration is that I think this goes from zero to crazy pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the only thing I'm really confident in is I think there are a lot of people on the left who when they hear liberals, uh, Rachel Madelon down talking about Russia, they think this is an effort to distract from how bad Hillary Clinton lost and why she lost. And I don't actually see much of that happening. I, I, I mean, I talked to a lot of Democrats and I covered the, the DNC race and talked to 
everyone running for that and everyone voting for that. Not everyone. You know, there are 447 people with a lot of them. And like none of them think it's, – it's complicated. None of them say um, Hillary – the only reason Hillary lost the election is Russia. What they might say is we, she was knocking on the door winning and that was – that tipped it. Um, and they will – they think they'll say she was weakened in the stretch by – Bernie by people who were kind of hardcore Bernie Sanders supporters and were exploited by um, DNC hacks, which the Russians did. Like, the, I think there's pretty good reporting on how there was a pretty specific effort uh, by uh, by some of these hackers and then by the, the Russian interests, I think, are behind it in exploiting divisions to help Trump succeed. So I think they're totally right. But they don't say, and uh, because of that, we just need to do the same thing in 2018 and win. Like, I, I just see a lot of straw manning about that, that, I, that confuses me because I spent all this time covering it. And like, when Democrats criticize Russia, they're not saying we just need to run Hillary every time until we stop this hacking problem. They're like, nope, that should have been a blowout. And it wasn't. And had she won, it would have been, um, there would have been no mandate. So we need to change what we stand for. Also, Russia interve- interfered. I think that's more, more what they're saying. All right. Finally, as as promised and on a totally unrelated note, you wrote a book about prog rock, which I uh, look forward to. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading at some point. And I mm-hmm. like prog rock very much and know nothing about music. Um, <laughs> so let me close with giving you a softball opportunity to pitch your book. So the book is called The Show That Never Ends, and it comes out June 13th. It is this reported through both interviews and reading basically every every music magazine published in Britain and America for about 30 years. Uh, reported through that, just kind of, it, it is like, I think, in part, our band could be your life, but of music that, are, that the bands in that book uh, were created to destroy. It is basically about the, the giant ambitious rock from the late 60s and the early 70s how it influenced what we like and why it failed. And in between, there are just a ton of Spinal Tap stories and I think some some stuff that I learned in the process about music. Uh, and some stuff that like, I, I give credit to the people who designed synthesizers originally, not for this kind of music, but then kind of mass marketed first for this sort of music. So it is it is about not just how music works, but it was it's about like a moment uh, of when people thought the direction they were going to take rock was going to be more ambitious, more, more classic, more experimental, and how that kind of ate itself, died, and and created what we what we all kind of listen, what we all kind of listen to now. There are like prog rock revivalists, but I, I thought like the way to understand punk and the way to understand new wave, the way to understand kind of the the, the reclamation of rock that. I've always been alive for was to understand what they thought they were reclaiming. And, and the really glib way to put it is like to understand why World War II happened. You like need to understand the Treaty of Versailles. It's almost like that. It's like you need to go back and understand what people were rebelling against. And in the process, go back to how the people who create this music that everyone rebelled against did not, they were not like, I'm going to create music no one likes on purpose. They thought the thing to do with rock, a brand new form at that time, brand, brand, brand new sort of art was to make it really complicated and really ambitious. And so I, I thought that was fun. I think ambition, ambition and folly are super fun. So I wanted to go in the book for that reason. Awesome. Well, uh, congratulations on the book and thanks for all of your work and thanks for making uh, so much time to speak with me. I appreciate it. 
Oh, no, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Dave Weigel is a reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once sort of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Tristan Rodman, music by Jeff Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And also, please do leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. We firmly, enthusiastically embrace all propaganda on our behalf. And please, please, please do give us money. We need it to pay all the people who do so much hard work on the show. To do so, find us on Patreon and support us with a monthly payment. Even $5 a month goes a long way. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking to Corey Robin, Nicole Ashoff, and two leaders of Democratic Socialists of America.